1967, uh, a young Bahamian actor named Sidney Poitier starred in what at the time was a pretty controversial movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And it's all about what happens when a woman shows up unexpectedly to her parents' house for a very interesting dinner. And, and the movie just sort of unfolds how, how this ignites a conversation and in turns a sort of Copernican shift in the hearts and minds of her family around this issue of race. And Genesis 18 in the same way is all about what happens when some unexpected guests show up at Abraham and Sarah's for dinner. And this also, this also unexpected visit ignites a conversation. And in return, it also spurs this Copernican revolution, this shift in the way each of them understood the grace of God. So let's set up the scene here as we, as we dive in. So you've heard us say this before, if you've been with us as we've journeyed through Genesis, but, but Abraham was a Bedouin. That means he was, he was nomadic. He moved around, now when, and he lived in a tent. Now, when we say lived in a tent, we're not talking about that thing, dads, you put in your backyard and you vow to sleep the whole night with your kids, but you secretly sneak out at 2 a.m., right? Because you got to go to the bathroom or the phone, you know, you're, you're cold or whatever. No, this is no tent. This is a traveling city. Remember, Abraham was very wealthy. Um, Abraham had animals and property and possessions and servants and and so what would happen um, in Bedouin nomadic culture in the ancient Near East is everything ran by the sun. And so when the sun came up, you went to work. You, you fed the animals, you did the chores, you did whatever, you hunted, gathered, whatever you were going to do until about 2 p.m. when you reached the hottest point of the day. And then everybody did what sensible people do, except Americans, you go take a siesta, right? Everybody gets out of the heat, out of the sun, you go take a nap, you put the animals to rest, and it says here that the custom was Abraham would, would sort of sit by in the shade by the door of the tent. And by sit in the shade, what we mean is he would snooze, right? Catch a little, catch a little shut eye. Things were pretty crazy around there. And, and so that's what Abraham is doing when he literally, eyes pop open. You know when that, that sense when your eyes pop open, you're like, uh-oh, something has happened, right? I've like slept through something or I've been startled awake, I'm kind of disoriented. Well, that's kind of what happens to Abraham here, where these three people, which turn out to be three angels, two, two are angels actually, one is the Lord, which in theological terms is what we call a theophany, it's an appearance as a human. He wakes up and they have literally, right, appeared out of thin air. That's how God always appears, right? In the Old Testament, out of, out of thin air and he's startled and he is surprised. You know, you may have seen the commercial recently where the Nissan Altima commercial, I think it is, where one friend texts another friend and says, how are you? And so instead of like answering on, on his phone, he just drives over to his house and appears on his front doorstep, right? I'm here to answer in person. And guy's like, well, what, what's happening? Startled, trying to make room for him. That's what's happening here. And listen to all the action words that Moses uses to describe Abraham springing into action. It says he ran to the tent door. He went quickly into the tent. I mean, he's in a, he's in a huff. Sarah, quick, come, fix. He ran to the herd. He says, prepare it quickly. Now, all of this, all of this manic behavior may kind of 
for us as Americans seem over the top, right? Because after all, we're the people who turn our lights out on Halloween and pretend not to be home, right? That's, and if that's you, ooh, God knows, okay, God knows. But this is not unusual for Bedouin society. This is how hospitality was exercised. And Abraham was demonstrating hospitality par excellence. Remember how crucial hospitality was in the ancient Near East. There were no inns. There were no Airbnbs. There were no bed and breakfast. There was none of that sort of stuff. Everyone depended on everyone else to make room to accommodate them as they were on the road, as they were traveling through a strange place. It was a sociological reality. It was expected. Of course, Abraham was going to make room in his tent for these guests because one day Abraham himself might be in need of hospitality. And so this is, so all these things that you see Abraham doing here, when he talks about give them a morsel of bread, that's just, guys, when you, when you map out the amount of food in accordance with what's specified here, this was a feast. Abraham bring in the feast, the fatted calf. I'm going to bow down to them. I'm calling them Lord. I'm, I'm even going to give them deference. I'm going to stand over here while I'm eating. And this is, again, we need to understand, this all seems bizarro to us because we live in our little enclaves, our private homes. But this is customary for hospitality in that day. It's not unusual. However, when we get to verse 9, this is what's unusual. Because as they're all sitting around here and, and making merry and Abraham is entertaining, one of them says, um, hey, hey, Abraham, Where's your wife, Sarah? Now, now, that's like the cricket moment of dinner, right? Because that's like, that's a, that's a major social faux pas, or as we say in East Tennessee, a fox pas, right? That, that, is major, that is major problems, okay? Because that's like an intimate, like that's too familiar. That's like, you just don't go there. I mean, like you're my guest, you're asking me about my, my personal life, and then this angel, the Lord, goes on to say, yeah, where's your wife, Sarah? Because um, I'm going to come back around this time next year, and she's going to have a son. Now, if Abraham doubted up to this point who he was entertaining, all doubts were dispelled at this point, right? He knows he's in the presence of the supernatural. He knows that these are not just any ordinary Beings. In fact, if you look at verse 10, Moses indicates this shift for us but, and indicates to us that up to this time, Abraham doesn't really know who these three are, but now he knows. Look at verse 10. It says, the Lord said, now the word Lord, that is literally Yahweh, God's unique chosen covenantal name. And, and, and here it's, Abraham's like, oh, this, this is not just any guest. This is the Lord. He realizes that he has been extending hospitality to angels, to the Lord himself. Let's think, we don't have time to go there, but Hebrews 13, 2, what does it say? Practice hospitality because doing so, people have entertained angels unawares. That's, it's referring to this story. And this is what Moses is drawing from. Now, here's the question we have to ask as we want to unpack this text. Why does God appear this way? Why does God appear now? See, we, we understand that God never does anything on accident. 
There's no wasted energy with God. What God does, he always does with a purpose. And let's, let's think about it. He has already appeared multiple times to Abraham. Abraham knows how this story ends. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give Sarah, not Hagar, I'm going to give Sarah a son. It's through that son which will come this seed. You'll build a great nation. You'll inherit a great land. And through that seed, the Messiah, I'm going to bless the Lord. So, so Abraham at this point is not lacking in information. Sarah undoubtedly is not lacking in information as husband. He obviously would have been communicating this to her. I'm going to maintain that it's for very personal reasons that God shows up to Abraham and Sarah in this story in this way because I think there's something unique he wants to show them about his grace. And I believe this morning, whether you have been a Christian one day, 10,000 days, or maybe, you're, maybe you don't know Christ at all, I believe God wants to show each of us something unique about his grace from this passage. So, so two, two points here. We're going to look first at the situation of Sarah, and then secondly, the affections of Abraham. So let's Let's dive in. The situation of Sarah. Now, the way Sarah responds to all this shows us that even if, even if Abraham had done Bible drill with the whole family every night, with family worship and rehearsing the promises of God, she clearly, let's at least say, severely doubted it or was prone to disbelieve it. Because look back at the text. It says that Sarah laughs. Now, remember, there's a, diff- a lot of different ways that word in the Hebrew can be, can be meant when it talks about laughing. So last chapter, when God told Abraham about Sarah having a son, what, is, what did Abraham do? He laughed, okay? But that was a joyous laugh. That was a celebratory laugh. It was to signal admiration and joy, kind of like when you wake up on, on Christmas morning and, and you get the gift that completely surprises you right? The one that you've really been hoping for, the one you wouldn't get for yourself, all those things, and you laugh, don't you? You're like, you shouldn't have, but I'm so glad you did, right? You know, it's that that sort of moment. That's not how Sarah is laughing here. The sense of the word is that she is someone who is incredulous, skeptical, expressing a high degree of cynicism and this is you can see this in the way that she responds and just think about the way this is kind of oozes out you can hear the spike almost in her voice after i am worn out and my lord is old shall i have pleasure you know if you're familiar with the book of ruth and naomi and naomi literally means bitterness you sort of sense some of that coming out with sarah now, Tim Keller um, made a number of, has made a number of great insights about this passage, and I'm going to draw on some of those for a second. But he notes, and I think this is right, that the word for pleasure there does not refer to this idea of being blessed with a child. That's, that's not what it literally means. It literally means, the Hebrew, erotic pleasure. And what she seems to be saying is, if I can be so frank, how can I, because Genesis is always frank with us, is it not? It says, how can I have a baby? Not only am I postmenopausal, we're not even being intimate. We're not even being together. What do you mean, have a baby? 
right? And if we're going to have babies the good old-fashioned way, like something's got to happen that's not happening right now. Now, isn't it interesting at this point, we know God can do the miraculous. And God most certainly, because he did it 3,000 years later with Mary, did he not? God most certainly could have planted an embryo, a seed in Sarah's womb, right? That would have been a fun conversation for a 200-year-olds to have. Hey, honey, guess what I found last night, right? You know, it's like, hello. But that's not the way God chooses to work in this. And I'm going to maintain the reason he chooses to work the old-fashioned way is because there's something in this for Sarah. Now, I'm going to read a little bit in between the lines here, and we'll find out totally for sure in heaven one day. But I want you to, to put your, yourself in the place of Sarah, and to, to develop some sort of empathy for her. Think about everything that Sarah has been through. Sarah, remember, had to make a journey with her husband to Egypt where he abandoned her. In order to save his own skin, he gave her up into the house of Pharaoh who used her sexually. Let's think about the time when Sarah, because she was so desperate, thrust Hagar into the arms of Abraham. And let's be honest, Abraham didn't exactly resist, did he? He didn't push back. He was like, okay, if you say so, honey, right? We have to know, you have to know that Sarah, I think, is likely very disengaged and disconnected from Abraham at this point in her life. You see, a lot of times in that culture, Women's value was based upon them having children. And let's face it, Sarah is, in, is postmenopausal. She can't have children. And Abraham is not engaging her sexually. You know that there, there has to be, and you, we've seen this in previous weeks, an amazing amount of distrust, of hurt, of pain, of relational distance in that marriage. And so when she hears this word, of course she laughs you would laugh, right? I would laugh. And here's what she says, or here's what the Lord, or here's what the Lord says to her. Just go back to the text, verse 12. First of all, when it says she laughs, literally to scoff, she does so, but quietly, right? To herself. Let's get the picture. She's Women were not allowed to sit with the men while they were eating. And so, so the men are around the table. She's behind the curtain, but she's doing right. She's listening. She is all ears. And she does, says, or scoffs under her breath. And listen to how God responds. Verse 16, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Now, I love what happen, what's happening here. There's not the fire of judgment. There, there's not the scathing indictment. What you see here is, I think, God in treating Sarah. He knows that she's listening. He's engaging her. This is a rebuke. Yes, it is. But it's a reminder. It's an invitation. Even the way that he playfully responds. I mean, we just have to think about this. Look at verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, oh, no, 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 right? But you did. You did. So I want you to remember something. Do you realize this is the first time God's appeared to Sarah? 
This is the first time that Sarah has ever received personally a word from the Lord. Up to this point, her relationship to God was through Abraham. That means it was a proxy relationship. And God says, I've chosen this woman to be the bearer of this son. But I just don't want her to bear a son. I can do that miraculously, but I want her heart. I want her soul. You can just see him saying, Sarah, I, I see your pain. I know your situation. I've read your mind, literally. I know your heart. But I've come back for you. And it's just a reminder on a couple of fronts for us this morning. Number one, having a relationship with God through someone else will do you no good. Any kind of mediated relationship. Oh, I'm a Christian. My parents have gone to church here my whole life. Or I was born in a, in a Christian family. Or I've done VBS or church camp or attended worship faithfully. But unless you know the personal living God... It will do you no good. And God appears to Sarah because, listen, up to this point, I don't believe she knows him. She knows about him. She, she knows things pertaining to him through Abraham, but he doesn't know her. But do you know God like that? And listen to the way the Lord responds to Abraham and with Sarah over, overhearing. He says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now that word hard in your translation could be translated difficult. But in reality, the most pure way to translate it is this, is anything too wonderful for God? That's what it literally means in the Hebrew. In other words, is there anything that you could dare dream, imagine, or envision that God could not do in and through you. Now, let me, let me just say something, because there can be a wrong application from, from this. A prosperity gospel preacher might say something, see, if you just believe God enough, like Sarah did, and have enough faith, he'll give you your dreams, which usually involves money and cars and vacations, right? That's, that's, not, what, that's not the point of this passage, because I, I want you to notice something, and Keller pointed this out as well. Do you know up to this point, Sarah doesn't even have faith. Sarah doesn't even have faith. In fact, she laughed at God. She scoffed at God. It's only after God's gracious initiation, his gracious confrontation, his gracious revelation of himself to her that she responds in faith. That's the whole point. That's what makes grace, grace. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. Sarah had not done anything. In fact, she had done the opposite. She, she had scoffed at God. And he said, is anything too wondrous for me, Sarah? So what is God asking Sarah to do? On one hand, we could say to believe him, to trust him. And yes, and we're going to see she does that. But more specifically, and again, if you don't like this interpretation, please email Tim Keller, not me, right? Okay. Keller says this, he wants Sarah to have sex by faith. 
He wants Sarah to re-engage her husband. He wants Sarah to move back towards him in spite of all the hurt, the pain, the residual, the distance. Let me just say something about this just for a second. A trend that I see in Christian marriages, I don't think it's a good one, goes something like this. You know, Pastor Paul, we're, we're married, of course, and of course we would never get divorced, right? We would never do that. We would never be unfaithful. But that's kind of all I got in the tank. You know, we can kind of grandparent together. We can, we can adult together. We can, might even travel together. I'm in it to the bitter end no matter what. That sounds enticing, doesn't it? That's kind of what I call a train track marriage. What are train tracks? They run parallel, but they never cross. I mean, they live together. Maybe they sleep in the bed, same bed from time to time, but it's kind of more like roommates. It's a co-op. You get the idea. Let me just ask you here, how would God have you step out in faith maritally today? Have you given up relationally? Have you given up sexually? Emotionally? romantically, what does faith look like for you? Now, here's, this is going to sound like a little in-sermon commercial break, okay? But let me just say this. This past season, we've taken, under Pastor Scott's leadership, 40 couples through re-engage marriage ministry. It's been absolutely life-transforming for so many of those couples in there. You might be a couple in crisis. You might be a couple who's just distant. You might just be a couple who's like, I think we're doing okay, but we need some, maybe need a little beefing up, a little work. Beginning February 3rd, we're running a second round of re-engage. 15 weeks, Monday nights. You can get more information at fouroakscalarn.com on the hub. I'm looking around this morning. I believe there are people in this room who absolutely, positively need to do this. And for you, it's like, oh, I could never, it's too hard, it's too painful. How did Sarah respond? Because we know she did, obviously. Hebrews 11, 11, Sarah responded, by faith, see, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, now listen, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Pastor Paul, he may hurt me again. Pastor Paul, she may hurt me again. Where's your faith? That's the whole point. You have to trust God. Before we, before we leave this point and talk about Abraham, let me just say this. Obviously, when we talk about faith, this is bigger than marriages. It's bigger than babies. Don't you see this is a picture of salvation? Let, let, let me ask you a question. Which is harder? For Sarah, barren Sarah, not having sexual relations with her husband, to have a baby, is that hard? Or is that the hardest thing you can imagine? Or is God pursuing with his grace sinners like you and me and saving us from our trespasses and sin? Though us who were dead to sin, I mean, dead, dead, to, dead to Christ, dead in our sin, not perceiving the things of God, not seeing his kingdom, which, which is a b- bigger miracle? That Sarah could conceive or that you and I could be saved. See, unless you say, unless you recognize salvation 
It is all by the grace of God. It is miraculous. You won't understand grace. That it was God's initiative and he's pursuing Sarah. He's pursuing you. So what does faith look like for you? All right, last point. We're going to hit this one a little more quickly. The affections of Abraham. So let's get the setting down. They've just dined, supped around this table, and the boys head out to the cliff for some after-dinner smokes. I'm not kidding, but I'm kidding. I, no, I'm actually not kidding. Probably, that was probably what they were doing. And they're, they're walking on this bluff, and they're overlooking the land, and there's Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord comments to himself, should I disclose my plans to Abraham? Because remember, God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and um, Pastor Scott, thank the Lord, is going to tackle that one next week. Thank you, Scott. (laughs) So we're going to hold off on discussing that, but let me say this, though. What does that mean, should I disclose to Abraham? What, what, What is that all about? I want you to look back at verse 18 for a second. And if something doesn't make sense, and John Piper always had this advice, just keep reading, right? So look, verse 17 first. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now listen, verse 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. So so let me rephrase that. Should I disclose to Abram? Because after all... Or in light of the fact, or for this reason, see, I've chosen Abraham to do something incredibly special. I've chosen him. He's my elect chosen. I'm going to send him out. I'm going to bless the nations through him. I'm going to give him the most important mission and ministry in the history of the world. Well, of course, someone who I entrusted this much responsibility to, of course, I'm going to share my heart with him. Now, what is being emphasized here about the character of God? Back to marriage. And some of you are like, oh, no. Yes, back to marriage. One second. What makes marriage the most intimate of all relationships? And I don't just mean sexually. What makes marriage so intimate is that you disclose things to one another that you would never share to anyone else. This extends even to your nonverbals. You can look at each other and you both know like it's, it's not even fair to your kids. Kids, if you're in here, your parents got it all over you. They got the ESP thing going. They, look at each, they, they have it down, right? But you share things that you never would share with anybody else. The same thing applies to friendships, right? The, 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 the closer you are, the safer you feel in a relationship, the closer you are, the more freedom you have to share your heart because you feel safe. This happens, it's, it's, it's axiomatic to human relationships. Now, John MacArthur always said there are many metaphors. I mean, I'm sorry, John MacArthur always said that there are, that, that as pastors, we're to never mix our metaphors. But, you know, there are many metaphors in God's word that describe our relationship with him. And there's many. Father and son, or father and daughter. Slave and master king and subject. But here, I think God wants to introduce to Abraham a a new aspect of his character, an aspect of his grace, an aspect of his relationship, and it's simply this. Abraham, 
you are my friend. See, the friendship of God is what led God to sit down with Abraham and to have a meal. Do you know that this is the only time in the Old Testament that God ever has a meal with another person? And here God and Abraham are coming together and they're celebrating this covenant meal. And look at verse 19. God reminded Abraham of his mission. He says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, the mission that I'm going to give Abraham is glorious, but it is incredibly hard. Remember, Abraham never owns a stitch of land in this promised land except a cave where he buries his wife. And God seems to be saying, what I need to give to Abraham as an assurance for him is a picture of my friendship. Let me ask you a question. You may have walked with the Lord your whole life. But do you truly know God as your friend? Now, you may know him as master, as Lord, as father, and all those things. Don't mix your metaphors. All those are totally legitimate. But for this season, do you need to be reminded, or how do you need to be reminded that God is, in fact, your friend? That he has laid his life down for you. That he invites you through his son, Jesus Christ, to sup with him, to sit down with him. That he wants to share the innermost part of his mind, which he has through his word. That he wants to commune with you, to know you, to walk with you. So this meal, does it not, has an incredible significance for Abraham. Now, I didn't realize this until I was studying this passage this week. But I was reminded reading one of the commentaries you know that many, if not most, of the significant miracles in appearances of Jesus' ministry occurred around food? That does bless my heart, by the way. Just totally bless my heart. Think about it. Feeding of the 5,000. The wedding at Cana. John 21, the fish fry. When Peter is restored. But what's the most important meal that Jesus ever celebrated with his disciples in the upper room. It was the covenant meal on Pas- in Passover. And I, I'm sorry, I'm going to ask Jesus. I, do, I don't think this is coincidence. I want to remind us from our study in John 15 what Jesus told his disciples in that room. What he reminded them of. And this was after Judas was gone. John 15, oh, this is precious. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his what? Friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Now, does that not sound eerily familiar? Why would I keep this from you, disciples? Why would I not disclose this to you? You're my intimates. You're my friends. I don't call you servants any longer. The servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I'm dining with you 
because of my divine supernatural grace. Let me say, Pastor Paul, God feels in this season of my life like anything but a friend. I feel alone. I feel abandoned. I feel isolated. I feel distance. To which I would ask you, because I think it's the question that Jesus has for all of us, is anything too difficult for God? Or better yet, is anything too wondrous for him? See, his greatest work, his greatest wonder through his grace is that you and I now can be his friend. And the, re- and the way that we can be his friend is that Jesus says, not only are you you're my friend's disciples, I am going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to pay the price, the cost, the penalty of sin for you. Just receive by faith my friendship. I will make your heart clean. I will give you new life. I can't promise everything's going to be okay in an earthly, humanly sense. That's not the point of this passage. But I can tell you, I'll give you the thing that you need the most. And that's me. And that's my presence. And that's my friendship.